HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you very much. Hello, this is your host, Katie Giever, and this show is called What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. For a second there, I almost forgot what it was. Um, and, uh, and today we're going to talk about the scariest book I've read in probably, I don't know, a decade, maybe ever. Um, and it is written by the wonderful Kristen Lawless, um, who's been on this air before, but way, way back in the mists of time. Um, but she is an author, a trained nutritionist, and an independent journalist who focuses on the intersections of food, health, politics, and culture. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Newsweek, and Vice, and her first book, which is the one I just referred to as the scariest book ever, formerly known as Food, How the Industrial Food System is Changing Our Minds, Bodies, and Culture. This will be um, debuting on June 19th uh, from St. Martin's Press, and congratulations, Kristen. It's really, what an achievement. What a great, scary book. (laughs) Thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate that. Oh, no, no problem. I literally was like, I mean, I I, I could hardly, I, I barely got out of bed after I finished reading. It. Oh I no, like, okay. <laughs> toxic There's environment, though, right at the end. <laughs> no, you have some great ideas. Um, what? So what? What? What actually got you going on on writing this book? 
Because you really cover a lot of ground in this, and we're going to talk about that. I I do. I think it was basically my work as a nutrition educator, which Mm -hmm. I've been doing since about 2009, and I worked with so many different kinds of people, and I found that it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, you're someone who was really highly educated, even like a doctor, to someone who didn't have much education, didn't matter. People just don't know. They're kind of in the dark when it comes to food and health. And yeah. we've, it's largely because we've been getting this steady stream of miseducation from the food industry itself and so-called dietary experts who, in many cases, are trained by the industry. Um, and it's just really confused people so much. Yes, I agree. I mean, there, wasn't there quite a scandal about a year or two ago about oh, registered dietitians and yes. who was paying? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so there, there you go. The experts paid for by the ex by the uh, by the industry. By the industry, yeah. exactly. They're Absolutely. educating anyone who's a registered dietitian in this country um, is basically educated by industry in all the schools where you get an RD. An RD is who you'll see in a doctor's office or in um, a hospital, and they're the people often quoted in the press. I mean, that's not to say there are some really excellent RDs out there that of are course. like kind of bucking the trend, but by and large, it's all this, this incorrect information, and it has people really confused and also frustrated because it's like they don't know who to believe or what to think anymore. Yes, but well, I really think that's um, on purpose because it allows the industry to keep pumping out these really crappy foods, basically. Okay, well, we'll talk about that. But let's let's start at the very end of the book. You have a manifesto, which I enjoyed, and you. Um, and you make some incredibly provocative demands, um, including universal base income, payment for cooking and household work, yay! Mm-hmm. Nutrition mm-hmm. and culinary education in all schools, which is something I've been saying since I started doing this show ten years ago. Yeah. Um, and you're, uh, you know, th- those th- were very radical to me. And then the other ones, which were like no more marketing junk food to kids, uh, dispensing with chemicals in food products, warning labels on food packaging, alerting consumers to the dangers within. Those seem very reasonable and actually eminently doable. Yeah. Um, the first three, I think, are going to be <laughs> a really heavy lift. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, they really they they require a essentially a seismic change in our society, like Mm -hmm. really a revolution. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because um, I had Raj Patel on last week. I listened. He's amazing. Isn't he incredible? I mean, can we just have a private mash (laughs) moment about Raj Patel? Oh my God. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And, um, and then last year he has a colleague with whom he has co-authored a couple of books. I can't remember the name of them right now, Mm -hmm. but his book, um, this guy, Eric Holt Jimenez. Yeah, I know of him too. Did you read, did you read his book? A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. So he and Raj are both like basically revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. And you have joined them. Yeah, you have. (laughs) (laughs) So very good company there, young one. Um, Really amazing. So so, um, talk about what what it would take to shift our society towards things like paying women to do what they do Mm -hmm. um, in the home. I mean, to me, not only does that make total sense, I remember whinging about that to my (laughs) ex-husband. Yeah, I mean... Everyone can relate to this idea, right? I mean, the truth is it's still predominantly women that do all this work, whether it's oh, child yeah. care, cooking, cleaning, shopping, like everything yeah. is done. And there's actually been a spate of books recently about sort of the emotional labor, too, involved in yes. all the work around the home. Um, but I think that, you know, when I'm talking about in terms of cooking, and I wrote an op-ed about this called Pay People to Cook at Home, oh. is that it would really change the entire kind of tenor of the conversation that's coming out of the food movement, which is like telling people, oh, just go buy organic foods, you know, vote with your fork, on and on. But that doesn't address the underlying issues. And we have, you know, serious economic inequality. We have 
women who are working in the home, outside the home, who's doing the work of raising the kids, taking care of the kids, breastfeeding the kids, which to me is one of the key factors in terms of um, improving public health, which mm-hmm. is borne out in tons of statistics and studies. Um, so it would reframe the whole conversation, and we'd say we need to put a monetary value on the work of cooking in the home and taking care of the young. And it's not this is not new. It's not original in the sense that there was someone named Selma James and a few of her colleagues back in the 70s. They had this, it was called the Wages for Housework campaign. Right. And so, um, you know, I'm indebted to Selma James and her colleagues for this. And they were arguing for this then. Uh, it was kind of dismissed by the second wave feminists because they were just arguing to get women out of the home and into the workforce. Right. The problem is, is women work in the home, and then they also work in the workforce. So yeah. it didn't, it's kind of screwed women over in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that if we can put a monetary value on this kind of work in the home, I think it would have the biggest impact on public health, because we know that what babies and children uh, are fed and what they're exposed to, including in the womb and as infants and children, has a major long-term effect on their health for their entire lives. Yeah. So we need to address this like right away when they're tiny babies or even in the womb. Yes. I, well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, <clears throat> I'd love to see that happen, and I, I hope someday that it will. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, people can hire people like me to cook in the home, and I'll do mm-hmm. <laughs> No, exactly. For people who don't want to do it. Not all women are going to want to do this. And that's, of course, totally fine. And 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 that's another part of my point. You know, men can do the work of cooking and cleaning and shopping, too. And why can't they receive a wage for that work? I mean, we're talking about paying for the work. Right. So, um, yeah. But because it's always... They hire plenty of other people who want to do it and should be paid paid a living wage. I mean, domestic workers right now are some of the poorest paid and exploited workers. Oh, no question. So Absolutely. that's a huge problem, too. I mean, who's taking care of, I, you know, you see these women taking care of babies all over these wealthy Manhattan neighborhoods or in Brooklyn neighborhoods. Like, where are their, those women's children? You know, they yeah. have to be taken care of, too. Right, right. No, I, as I was coming here from uh, the Upper West Side, that's I, I passed stroller after stroller after stroller of babies right. being cared for by um, typically women of color of right. one form or another, you know, from, exactly. from one uh, ethnic group or another. It was a... Uh, you know, it was, it was educational as always. So let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit about because we want to dial back. You know, go back to to sort of the the, the beginning, which is your microbiome and what mm-hmm. comes what you come equipped with um, right. when you're born. So talk to us about the chronic disease, the chemicals, microbiome, sort of about that. Sort of how children's food affects their health going forward for the rest of their lives. Let's let's yeah. connect those dots. So one of the most alarming and I think shocking findings to me was some research that's coming out of UC Davis, and they found that this one strain of bacteria, it's referred to in short as B. infantis, that used to be the predominant strain of bacteria in the infant gut and actually Mm -hmm. sort of crowded out all the other bacteria, is now extinct in the Western world. So 97% of babies in this country and other Western countries don't have it anymore. this is a huge problem because this particular bacteria is perhaps at the root of a ton of chronic diseases from obesity, diabetes, to certain cancers even. Mm-hmm. Um, the key with this bacteria, well, one, one babies don't have it, um, but if they do have it, they need to be fed breast milk because breast milk has this one kind of carbohydrate that feeds the bacteria. Uh-huh. And um, so, you would, you know, it's designed that way by nature. 
Um, unfortunately, with the rise of things like C-sections um, and formula feeding and overuse of antibiotics, we've rendered this bacteria extinct. So this is shocking to me because I'm thinking, oh, here I am. I'm like this healthy person. I eat really well. I eat all these fermented foods. Yeah. Um, doesn't matter because if you don't have bacteria, you can't, you know, you can't feed it. Right. So this is a big problem. And it's not just in babies because in another group of researchers at Stanford has found the extinction of certain strains in adults, too. And that's because they, they say we're not feeding the bacteria the fiber that it needs to proliferate. And so they're just kind of dying off. And Again, these are the more protective strains. And so when you have that going on, and then on top of that, you have all the chemicals in the food supply, like I talk about emulsifiers, which are found in things like ice cream, peanut butter. Mm -hmm. um, those are also damaging the more fragile and beneficial strains. And then you have a proliferation of these bad bugs that are harming the intestine. Uh, also artificial sweeteners. I mean, the list goes on. And so in combination, we're just damaging the gut. And the gut appears to be, this is like, you know, really exciting new science, but it appears to be at the root of so many chronic health issues that, you know, because the, a, a finely tuned and healthy microbiota keeps inflammation down throughout your entire body. Right. When you damage it, you're just like kind of subverting this whole system and you're ending up with all these chronic diseases. It appeared. I mean, that's what it appears to, to look like at this point. Right, right. Well, there was a big, um, I admit that I did not see this, but I <clears throat> listened to uh, an interview with the guy who put together, there was a big, at the Natural History Museum in New York a few years ago, there was a big exhibition on microbiome. Right. Which I'm sure you did go to, um, because you're probably a better person than I am. But no, anyway. No, actually um, I didn't, because I was probably <laughs> too busy writing the book to do anything. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but, you know, that was, to me, that was my first sort of exposure to the idea of a microbiome and it made yeah. so much sense to me. And then I think about, you know, it's not just, um, it's not just cancers and diabetes and obesity that, mm -hmm. that the mi microbiome may be responsible for. It's also things like mood disorders, right? Exactly. Anxiety, so depression. Yeah. Right. I mean, all of that stuff, uh, autism, um, yeah. You know, it's all being ascribed, you know, at the sort of tentatively, granted, as you said, right. the science is, is still new, but um, it's just incredible how much this this controls. And it, you know, it, it just, it sort of, it connects the dots about why things are the way they are here. Like It, it does. And, and because we didn't understand this for so long, yeah. it was just not even, you know, it was like, oh, just, you know, give a C-section, no big deal, or give antibiotics, no big deal. But right. actually, we're, it turns out this is like a huge deal and, in fact, caused like extinctions on, the ma on a mass level. And that, I mean, when you think about that, that's a very profound change. Yes, it is. Well, I and you know it's scary to think about. I mean, I've certainly ingested my share of antibiotics throughout Everyone my has, life. Yeah. yeah, and then and when my daughter was a young child, she had chronic ear infections. Right, and she was given antibiotics basically from May to you know from October to May every year. Ugh, I know for like three years, and then and that's her, very common. Yeah. Uh, very common, and mm -hmm. then her doctor said to me, "I'm not going to treat her with antibiotics anymore." He said, "We were sold." a bill of goods by this pharmaceutical companies. Like he had done a bunch of research and he was just beside himself with rage that he had been doling out these antibiotics mm -hmm. to kids like mine. And, um, and he had, you know, done obviously incalculable damage to her, um, internal flora. And right. he was just, he was mortified and furious. I know. I mean, that's where I think the research at UC Davis this is one researcher I spoke a lot to named Bruce German. Um, it's, it re represents a whole paradigm shift in the way we think about treating disease because in his model, you, you can give the B infantis 
And when you give the B infantis and then you also give the breast milk, it just takes over. So it, it crowds out all the bad guys. Right. And then you just have this healthy gut flora. Rather than giving an antibiotic, which wipes out good and bad, it's indiscriminate, yeah. and causes all these long-term problems. So right. it's like, I mean, honestly, if, if, it, if this all pans out, it could be a huge public health boon. Yes, indeed it could. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit, since we were talking about breast milk and breastfeeding, formula and baby food, a billion-dollar industry. You know, let's let's just point out a few of the things that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that this re- reliance, and I'm a baby formula um, survivor. Because, well, I know so many people are. Right, yeah. because in the 50s, when I was born, I'm, I'm a baby boomer, and um, mothers were discouraged from breastfeeding. Exactly, I So know. all of the people in my cohort, in my age range, probably I'd say a good 75 to 80% of them did not ever get breast milk. I know. And I have asthma. Well, and allergies. I mean, exactly. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a, a tragedy in that sense is you know, linking in terms of this, the, the, the absence of the bacteria and the formula feeding, um, is we see this explosion of chronic diseases among, yeah. you know, your generation and mine and, and down on through the ranks into today. So, um, baby formula is like my biggest pet peeve. I know it's, <laughs> um, people sometimes, what is the word they call lactivists, women who are like really yeah. pro breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and of course, there's uh, there's circumstances where women have to use formula. Sure. Um, but if you can, breastfeeding is like I think the biggest preventative. And this, I mean, again, this gets to the broader issues of like paid parental leave. If women don't have it, right. they can't breastfeed, and it's not their fault. They need to make a living. Um, but again, I mean, you're setting the stage for all sorts of chronic diseases. The other thing so interesting to me in the research about formula is it's very monotonous in terms of the flavor profile. Ah. So when, you know, when babies are breastfed, the flavor in the milk is constantly changing with whatever the mother eats. Um, And that's just the one, like, that's just one thing. But so you're sort of setting your, you're setting your child up in a way to prefer the more monotonous, bland flavors found in processed foods because they're not going to be accustomed to them if they are having formula. Um, And then this also goes into when they're little tiny babies. If you feed them bland rice cereal <clears throat> or, you know, all these white foods that we give to kids, yeah. uh, they're not going to be accustomed to the more strong flavors found in things like Brussels sprouts or broccoli or, right. you know, any kind of um, whole food. So you need to give your baby the foods that you're eating. Hopefully, hopefully you're eating well. Um, yeah, really? so that they have a chance to learn to like those flavors. No pureed Doritos, please. <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean, you know, you, people give their kids like Cheerios and rice cereal, and yeah, and that's you know part of the problem. But that's also what they've been told to give their kids. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of hard to, to fully. It's it's really the you know the onus comes down on the industry in many ways because it's this like you said, it's this huge billion dollar industry, and it's pushed and pushed on, and and parents are told it's fine, it's healthy. They think that's what they should be giving them. Yes, I think so. And I, you know, I mean, I obviously, because I'm a cook, I didn't, um, I did not do, I breastfed and I also did not do for, uh, baby food. Yeah. But I, 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 I always thought about, you know, like you, you make the point that, you know, since cooking should be paid work, here's mm-hmm. another place where, you know, women don't have time necessarily. I did. I was lucky enough to be a stay-at-home mom for three years. Right. And, you know, most of my cohort did not have that luxury. And they were not making, you know, regular food for themselves and then pureeing it or whatever they did for it for the kids. Yeah. For the no, babies, know. you know. And it's like, <clears throat> how do you escape the trap 
of that, well, baby food. And that's why we need to restructure the society. Yeah, so. Absolutely, Kristen. Okay, that's good. All right, now let's move on. So you had a whole, a quite, quite a long um, chapter about fortification. Mm-hmm. And fortification, you know, is something that we all think is so damn great. It's like our milk is fortified with vitamin A and vitamin D. Yeah. Um, you know, cereals are fortified with iron or similar vitamins and stuff like that. Right. Um, to, talk about that. To, you know, wh- <laughs> why did that start? Start, and why why did we accept it as like a good thing instead of sort of the bullshit? Excuse me, that it mm-hmm. is. Well, I mean, it's fortification is like basically a result of the industrialization of the food supply. If we didn't industrialize our food and it wasn't so depleted, we wouldn't have to add stuff back into it. So <laughs> right. if we ate whole foods, a diverse variety of whole foods, we, you know, we wouldn't have these kinds of weird diseases. I mean, that's not that's why like certain like rickets and goiter and things like that were cropping up before they realized, like, oh, we're missing out on these certain crucial vitamins that they then added back to the the food supply. And then those right. kind of really uh, devastating diseases disappeared. But the problem with fortification is it may get, you know, it may prevent those, like, very extreme diseases, but it, it's not good in terms of, like, preventing chronic disease and keeping you healthy long term. Um, you mentioned milk, for example. Yes. We've been told we should eat low-fat milk, fat-free dairy, you know, all right. yogurt, whatever. Stay away from the fat. <clears throat> then they add synthetic vitamin A and D to those products. The problem is vitamin A and D are fat-soluble, uh-huh. which means you need to have fat. You need to take them in with fat in order to get absorbed into the body. <laughs> that, that's why they come in whole foods because it's like in whole milk, rather. Yeah. Uh, it's in the cream part of the milk. Um, that's how we got it traditionally. Now they tell you to eat the skin and take the and take the vitamin, but it doesn't work. I mean, uh, I think Americans, seventy five percent of Americans are deficient in vitamin D, yet they all drink milk, or a lot of them drink milk, yeah. especially low fat and fat free. So something's clearly wrong with that picture, um, <laughs> and that's because synthetic versions are not are poorly absorbed, and you need fat in order to utilize them. And that's true with many important nutrients and vitamins. Right. Um, you well, the, need fat. Fat's an important part of the, the diet. Whole, the whole, I mean, the, you know, the whole story of, of basically sugar throwing fat under the bus. And the, right. that was in the 1950s, that Harvard study that, um, you know, sort of launched the whole fat-free industry, essentially. Right. Um, paid for by the sugar industry. Um, <clears throat> you know, that, you know, we, we got sold that bill of goods. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. idea that we shouldn't eat butter and we should mm-hmm. eat, um, instead we should be eating margarine. I mean... Uh. Yeah. What? Well, you know, and, and then it turns and out that's we, poison. We've learned, right? Trans fats are actually cause heart disease, <laughs> which we were told eat margarine to avoid heart disease. Yeah. Oh, wait, whoops. They cause yeah. heart disease. Right, right. And <laughs> so it only gotta, took 30, gotta 40 gotta wonder, years. Like, to how many that other out. things are like that that we don't even know about yet? Yeah, well, let's, so let's talk about, let's talk about grass. And the FDA and the EPA and sort of grass is generally regarded as safe. Isn't that right? I think that's what it means. Uh, generally recognized Gen- as safe. Recognized as safe. Sorry. Um, and and, and oh, no, sort you're of- right. Sorry. Regarded. You're right. I always get those mixed up. Oh, well, anyway, me too. That's why I asked you. Um, so uh, so grass and, and grass is generally regarded as safe is is a terminology that is used by the FDA uh, to say that, you know, certain additives in food have shown no adverse effects. And you had so many interesting stories about that because of the way uh, the sort of the, the poison is the dose or the dose is the poison Kind of mm-hmm. thing. You know, talk about that and, and sort of the failure of the FDA and the EPA in, in, in adequately regulating the, the ubiquitous chemical components that go into not only our food, but also into the packaging that our food is, is, is sold in. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues 
with the regulatory agencies that yeah. I wrote a chapter about it. could have been an entire book. Yep. Um, but I think the key issues that I don't think most consumers know or realize, number one, industry provides its own data. So right. this is like a fundamental flaw in the design. <laughs> so you Fox have manufacturers creating things yeah. like uh, the, all the pesticides, emulsifiers, uh, plasticizers, all the things that end up in the food and the food packaging or on the food. They do all their studies themselves, and then they interpret the data, and then they present them to the regulatory agencies. Uh-huh. Well, the companies don't have any incentive to say there's harm in their product because they just want to sell their product. Sure. So why is that the case? You know, that doesn't seem to make sense um, to anyone besides the, <laughs> the companies. Um, you mentioned the dose makes the poison. Yeah. This is really, this is such a crucial this issue, is, and yeah, I have a chapter on endocrine-disrupting yeah. chemicals, which are things people may know, like the most sort of infamous one is BPA. Mm-hmm. That's in all, like, the hard plastics, and they were basically banned from uh, infant and baby bottles and sippy cups because of the potential harm they cause, especially to children and yeah. babies and fetuses. Um, but the thing about these endocrine disruptors, and it, that's just one example, there's thousands of them. Sure. Um, the thing about them is they act on the body because they act on the endocrine system, which is uh, your hormonal system. They act on the body in very, very small dosages. So that means you could take in just like a, tra- a trace amount, which is what the industry calls it, and they say that um, trace amounts are safe. Right. But when you take in a trace amount, you're taking in a hormonally active substance. So that's going to have can have a big effect. And in, in fact, sometimes small amounts have a much bigger effect on the body than large amounts. How does that uh, work, Kristen? How does that work? I didn't understand that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why would a larger dose um, not be more toxic than a smaller? Why would a smaller dose be more toxic than a larger? Because um, the, the way the body works is, is chemical messengers, which are hormones. Uh-huh. So, like, um, a good example that I think people can understand is, like, the birth control pill. You're giving someone a very, very small dose of estrogen, but it has this big effect of preventing you from ovulating. Right. Um, that's, that's no different than in, in the sense of um, the way these chemicals are affecting us. It's affecting the hormonal system and triggering these large biological effects um, based on very small amounts. So th- this is, and then the problem when it comes to the regulatory agencies is they're not considering the fact that this is the case and they operate under this idea. And it's sort of like a common sense idea. People think, oh, it's only a small amount. Can't really hurt me, right? Right. Um, but that's not true when you're talking about the endocrine system. I see. And so, you know, so many of the researchers I spoke to, they're just so frustrated by this because they're like, look, this is a fundamental tenet of endocrinology, um, yet the regulatory agencies aren't considering any of these findings because they just that, that's not how they operate. It's not how they do their testing protocols. So um, it, it, assuming that, that they I mean, do the protesting protocols, since you just said that the that the companies themselves are the ones who are doing the testing, exactly, I mean, like, and they're using this sort using of the data science around mm-hmm. the dose makes the poison. Incredible, and <laughs> yeah. it really is. And what about is um, I, I was also wondering about the cumulative impact of you know ingesting this uh, you know because uh, like for instance the BPA story where it was literally in every plastic bottle and sippy cup and t- can liner right. and whatever. So people were have been ingesting this product um, in whatever dose they are ingesting it, but o- over a period of decades. Um, right. And I'm I'm just wondering if the cumulative effect is also uh, and you know impactful in the same way. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Industry has said about BPA in in particular, that it flushes out of the system, mm-hmm. which it does. But you're right, because you keep taking it in. So you don't really have a chance to get it fully out of your system. Yeah. The CDC said like 99% of all Americans have BPA in their oh body. So it's just everywhere. Um, there's really no avoiding it. And, and, and that, that's the other thing is like, it's not only cumulative, but what about these thousands of other chemicals that are in combination? Right. That, and we don't know how they're interacting. Right. This is why I found your book so freaking scary. <laughs> Like, gee whiz, you know, I'm not growing it myself. I'm not eating it. No. Well, that, I mean, and that's the thing. It is scary and it's not fair because why yeah. are these industries allowed to get away with it? I mean, why Why is the consumer bearing the, the health burden of all of this is the question. Well, it is a good question, but I, I mean, to counter that question, and I, I am going to pay a little bit, play a little bit of devil's advocate here, is like, I don't think that um, food companies wake up in the morning and think of ways to poison uh, their no. their consumers. No, not at all. I, I'm, you know, I, I feel like uh, everything that is done is done not just because uh, it's going to wind up as a, a better bottom line for their shareholders or everything, but it's also like, well, it's more convenient, it's going to mm-hmm. taste better, it's going to be uh, easier to to transport. I mean, there's so many decisions that go into the way yeah. products are formulated. Yeah. Um, and I think that by and large, you know, the the companies are are anxious to do right. Um, you think? Uh, I don't. I like I said, I just don't think they wake up and think I want to poison this this community. I think that they. Uh, sort of ignore, you know, like human nature being what it is, they ignore the unfortunate, um, unpleasant mm-hmm. aspects. <laughs> because because to be honest, Kristen, I mean, there's study after study, but there's no one has shown, it's just like, um, you know, with the glyphosate issue, um, no one has shown yet had, a def- as far as I know, a definitive study that says, yes, this chemical does X and it is harmful to humans. Well, I mean, the World Health Organization says it is a probable carcinogen, and that's no small thing. They said that, but then they sort of dialed that back a little bit later. Be- um, well, yeah, but because of pressure from industry. Yeah, but, you know, they it, it was because it, because they had to, because they didn't right. have that. They didn't have that smoking gun, you know what no, I mean? No, you're right. You're right. It is still... There, there, so it's, it's don't hard. don't have the definitive proof. Right. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to make them stop. When they're when they're making money and there is no definitive proof, so I mean, without you know, I certainly I'm obviously not saying I advocate for food companies to continue to poison us, but but I, that's sort of how I see it happening. It's kind of like mission drift or something, you know, like mm-hmm. mission creep. I think is the expression where you you know you sort of get into territory that is not really where you intended to go, but somehow you're there, and so you just do what you got to do. And I, I sort of think that's what's happening, but um, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that your book will change all of that. Well, um, I mean, and that's the thing is that it's like, okay, maybe we don't know for fact, uh, 100% right. certainty that glyphosate causes X, Y, and Z. But if you look at all the literature, which I've looked at a lot of it, and you talk yeah. to experts, they're like, it's pretty damn clear yeah. what's going on with this. Yeah. Um, why do we need to prove it, like, to the, you know definitively before we say, you know what, maybe we should just, like, not put this all over the food everyone's eating. Right. Um, and, and when you look at, there's been example and example over the course of history, like, what about DDT? Everyone was like, oh, this is great. This is safe. Well, turns out, no, it caused cancer and all kinds of infer- issues with fertility and, all, you know, right. like, it's, there's story after story like that. So yes. I don't know why we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And, and and more importantly, I don't know why the FDA and the EPA are giving them the benefit of the doubt since they are paid by the taxpayer 
Right. To regulate these chemicals and make sure that they don't um, that they don't harm the population and the environment. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor drop, Kristen. We'll be right back with um, Kristen Lawless talking about her wonderful book, formerly known as Food. Um, we're going to have a quick sponsor drop, and um, and then yes, onward, onward, onto more outrage. <laughs> <laughs> Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. That's right. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. You probably already know this already because um, you're listening to a podcast. But anyway, we like to say that. It just makes me feel like I'm really a radio announcer. Um, But my guest today, in case you missed the name, the first time is Kristen Lawless. Kristen is an author and journalist, and she has published, is about to publish, I should say, June 19th is your pub date, um, a wonderful book called Formerly Known as Food, which I think everyone needs to read. Okay, here's one of my favorite things in the whole book. Mm-hmm. You skewered the food movement. <laughs> I loved that. I mean, with all due respect to Michael Pollan, he is one smug, <clears throat> paternalistic kind of guy. I mean, the idea of these people, like you said at the top of the show, of like dictating to you know the rest of the world. Well, if you just eat healthy, if mm-hmm. you just cook at home, if you just make your own, you know, uh, 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 then you'll be fine. Right. And that's just not realistic. So let's let's dig into some of the issues that prevent people from um, cooking. You know, there's the lack of, of uh, adequate income, food deserts. What mm-hmm. are you know, no time. Let's you know, let's mm-hmm. dig into some of these issues. Yeah. Like how 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 can we fix some of that? What are some of the ways that the industry maybe could help people, or mm. or just society yeah. can change its attitude? Maybe let's not talk about the industry helping anybody. <laughs> They're just going to help right. themselves. But um, you know, like what what could be changed to make uh, better quality food more readily available to people who have trouble accessing it? Yeah, I think. Um, well, I guess first I should say. I mean, I'm critiquing the food movement lovingly because obviously, sure, these the people who are part of it have done a lot to advance. Yeah you know, knowledge around and awareness of these issues. And, and, um, but I think we need to push it further, and, that's, and I think it needs to be politicized in a way or radicalized in a way because, yeah. like you said, when you tell people just go to the farmer's market and go buy organic foods and vote way for it is n- not effective for creating change. Um, we have basically two food systems, which is right. the, the really healthy, sustainable one that 
people that who are rich wealthy people and can have do. access to yeah. <laughs> can afford. And then the the other food system, which is like the majority of Americans, which they're stuck relying on. And so you're allowing both you're allowing the the bad aspects of the food industry to kind of just keep going on without changing any of it. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's where my my manifesto comes in at the end because I think we need to organize. I mean it comes down to organizing and demanding change. Um, I think we need to hold the food companies more accountable for what they're putting in our food, uh, you know, what they're doing to our food, what they're doing to our health. Um, that's going to take some serious organizing. Yeah. Um, and there has been some impact. I mean, you know, the food movement has had some impact. I mean, the idea that uh, antibiotics are being phased out in right. some companies. Oh, yeah. Um, that's completely attributable to the food movement. Right. Um, they would never have done that without without consumer outrage, basically, and a lot right. of pressure. So it, it does work to organize. But I think, you know, not to cut you off, Kristen, of course, mm-hmm. I'm such a freaking blabbermouth. I'm sorry. No, no. But no. I... <laughs> But I think it's, I think, you know, it's, it, it is, it is entirely political, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as anything else. And you yourself, actually, in the book say, you know, the idea that voting with your fork is going to make major change, meh, not so much, right? Right, exactly. So, so what, it, what is the answer? Like, where do we go? Where do we march? <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> um, well, no, I think like, and that's where the idea of pay people to cook at home, universal basic income, these um, these would represent major societal shifts. But I think in order for to get there, people have to understand the issues with, that that I've laid out in the book, and that you know other people have too. But people need to really understand and care. And I, but I think as we see health deteriorating across the board, yeah, people are going to really care. And I do I do you know people really want to protect their children, right? Everybody does. Everybody wants their baby and their kids to be healthy. What we're seeing is these. Um, these surges in childhood disease we've never seen before. Yeah, um, that's scary, and I think people should be alarmed. And then, and I think people should start demanding change, not only from the government, but they should be organizing themselves. And I, I give the example of the Park Slope Food Club, which I know everyone sort of makes fun of, but <laughs> it's actually a remarkable experiment when you look at it because it grew from a, like a dozen members in the 70s to now we have 17,000 members. Right. We get food at basically wholesale. It's a 20% markup above wholesale price, mm-hmm. which most supermarkets, it's nearly 100%. Sure. Um, you, we can get, we have access to amazing regional food that is organic, sustainable, grass-fed. It's food that most people could never afford if they didn't belong to the food co-op. Right. I think if we can start... You know, this idea, this model, it exists. It's and, mm-hmm. it, and they, they sell over a million dollars of produce a week. It's it's profitable. Wow. So why can't we replicate this everywhere in every community? I mean, people, this would solve. You know, this would be a big. This would be go a big step in solving a lot of the problem. Yes, it would be. Um, it would be if again, if we went back to that idea that everyone could cook at home. <laughs> okay, right. So, so, and then that also gets to the issue of the skill involved of cooking at yeah. home, because over the past couple generations, we've lost that skill, and people aren't just don't even know how to like you know prepare vegetables or roast a chicken or totally. any of these things. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part part of what I say in pay people to cook at home is that we need a program that is re-educating people, and it should begin in the schools to how to cook and how to prepare foods at home. I mean, this is like so fundamental to our health and survival as a species that it's kind of like, how are we not doing this already at this point? And right. we didn't really talk about climate change because that's a whole other thing, but 
the food sure. industry and the you know all of that is is crucially linked into climate change. Oh, of course, absolutely. And you know, we'll be we'll be coming up on water shortages in no time. I mean, right. that's that's already becoming an issue in in other parts of the world in the sub uh, sub you know sub-Saharan countries. Mm-hmm. Um, water is like. <laughs> anyway, we're not going right. to go on there. We're not going to go there. But no. let's talk for a second about, I mean, one of the things that, you know, when you when you lay out these strategies, I mean, they totally make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is that we have a population which um, is really only interested in one thing, which is cheap food. Mm-hmm. And the industry has provided cheap food really kind of brilliantly. Um, and the, the health implications of that don't seem to really be percolating through the population because we're continuing to see obesity levels rise. And, and I know you see this, you know, if you shop at a regular grocery store, you see they're buying soda, they're buying, you know, whatever. I don't care what your demographic is, right. you know, rich, poor, black, mm-hmm. white, brown, doesn't matter. You know, yeah. you're, people are mm-hmm. buying that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, you know, the indifference to sort of public health is something that I think requires a massive education program before any of the rest of this stuff can go on. It um, does, and I think it goes back to what we're teaching kids in, in, in the schools when right. they're little. And a lot of the researchers I spoke to who do research on uh, taste preference and taste development and all these things, they all said you have to start young because if you don't start young, it's very difficult to start changing habits and behaviors in, in adults. Yes. It, it just is. So... Um, you know, that's what we're looking at is getting it in the schools, educating kids. And, and, and then the kids, you know, they tell their parents, too. They do. They drive a lot of the grocery store decisions. There's no question about that. Right. Um, I think that's, that's certainly been very well documented. And it's why so many grocery stores put things like chips and candy right at the register because right. those kids are sitting there in the, in the shopping cart with mom. Oh, yeah. Or dad. On those, <laughs> if, you have one of, if you're lucky enough to have one of those. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, so really what we're talking about is that we need to, we have a whole generation. I mean, and I'm very encouraged by the kids, uh, who have taken a stand about gun control. Mm-hmm. And I think that these children, I think they are going to move this country distinctly towards a more socialist model, which I would welcome. And I, yeah. I'm hoping that that's, um, that that's sort of, this is going to be part of that whole movement, right. uh, to the left where there is, you know, better education around health and nutrition. Um, right. and, um, and also a sense of like, what is fair, mm-hmm. what is equitable, what is just, why are these communities struggling to find, you know, fresh produce in their, in their area? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, we may have to wait until that generation is old enough to vote. <laughs> It, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm definitely encouraged by that and by the younger people that are coming into office and especially by the many women who are starting to come yeah. into office. And there's been a couple, there's a woman in Wisconsin running for governor and she has touted that she was part of the effort to ban PPA. She's also breastfeeding in her, um, in one of her ads. There's another woman in Maryland who has called for three months paid family leave there. So you're seeing younger people, people with young kids, um, women in particular saying, you know what, this is not working. Yeah. It's not working for the health of our communities. It's not working for our own children. And um, this has to change. So I think, you know, that is hopeful. It is. I think it's very hopeful. I'm, I can't wait to see all these old white men get voted out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now is your moment to promote yourself shamelessly. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, girl. <laughs> I, um, yeah, so my book will be available June 19th. Uh, St. Martin's Press publishing it. You can mm-hmm. pre-order it now on Amazon or through uh, IndieBound.org. Um, you can check out my website. It's Kristen K R I S T I N Lawless L A W L E S 
manifestofs.com. I have an excerpt from the manifesto on there. I also have a table of contents, and I have, all kind of, I have recipes. I have all kinds of stuff really? uh, on the website that you can check out. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kristen Lawless. I'm also on Facebook. I'm having my book launch event uh, on the 19th at the Community Bookstore, which is here in Park Slope, Brooklyn. It's on 7th Avenue. It's a really cool local bookstore. Nice. Um, I'll be joined by Erica Wise, a former Heritage Absolutely. Radio Network. One of Absolutely. One of our um, earliest hosts. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we'll be in conversation about the book. So I invite anyone to come out and check it out. I'll sign books, too, if you want. Of course you want to sign books. You get a good pen for that so you can yeah. like make an impression. Yeah. And um, uh, congratulations on the newest member of your family, by the way. Oh, thank you so I know, much. I, I know he's five, five months, months old, old, but yeah. <laughs> so he's not that new, but he's still pretty new, I bet. He's still pretty new. And, you know, like I'm, I'm breastfeeding, and I can tell you that is a lot of work. Yes, it takes time. It, it there's does. no question about it. And, and, and uh, there's not really, at this age, there's really not much of a schedule. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> It's like, you know, pop it out, Mom. I don't care if we're on the subway. (laughs) Give it to me or else. (laughs) But, yeah, this is a full-time job, and I've never, you know, I wrote the book before I had him, but Mm -hmm. now I really appreciate why we need these kinds of social programs in place that allow women to breastfeed, allow them to be home with their babies and kids. I mean, this is crucially important for their long-term health and then for the society, public health as a whole. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So the book is called Formerly Known as Food. People rush right out and get yourselves a copy um, and prepare to be scared, uh, but also prepare to be really educated. There was a lot of great material in that book, Kristen, and I thank you so much for writing it and doing all that work. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Katie. I you really betcha. appreciate your It was support. my pleasure, truly. And thanks to my sponsor. And thanks, of course, to my beloved engineer, Dave. Um, see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.